Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. This is the second and final part of the Schleswig War of 1864. In last week's episode, I described the background to the Schleswig War of 1864, including the growing sense of nationalism in Germany, and the growing tensions between Denmark and Germany over their borders in the regions of Schleswig and Holstein. The historical question of Schleswig-Holstein is famously complex. The 19th century British statesman Lord Palmerston is once reported to have said that, quote, only three people have ever really understood it. The Prince Consort, who is dead, a German professor who has gone mad, and I, who have forgotten all about it, end quote. The dispute over the two duchies was in part an old-fashioned dynastic crisis, following the death of a monarch, but there was also a large role played by nationalism which during the course of the 19th century became an ever more powerful mass movement. On the 15th of November 1863, King Frederick VII of Denmark died. There was no direct male heir, so the Danish crown passed via the maternal line to Christian of Glücksburg, who was both Frederick's uncle and cousin, and who became Christian IX. A dispute arose, however, over who had a legitimate hereditary claim to rule over the duchies of Schleswig and Holstein. A series of international treaties in the early 1850s had established that Christian IX would also succeed to the duchies after a rival claimant, Christian of Augustenburg, agreed to renounce his claims. 
His son, Frederick of Augustenburg, however, declared himself unbound by the treaty, and his claim was enthusiastically supported by the German nationalist movement. The situation in Copenhagen, the capital of Denmark, was tense, with large crowds outside the royal palace demanding a new constitution. At one point, the demonstrations were so turbulent that the city's chief of police warned of the imminent collapse of law and order in the city. Without significant political support, Christian IX was in no position to resist, and he reluctantly signed a constitution in November, almost immediately afterwards seeking a way to get it repealed. On New Year's Eve, a new council president of Denmark was elected, and he was named Dietlev Gotthard Monrad. Monrad was a Lutheran priest, a former newspaper editor and the leading figure in the National Liberal Party. He almost certainly suffered from a manic depressive disorder, a condition causing extreme shifts in mood and energy. He was also a hardline Eiderdane, that is, one who fully supported the national mood to bring Danish authority more firmly to the Duchy of Schleswig. While the Danish government had no desire to provoke a crisis, it had reasonable hopes of securing great power support. Christian IX hoped especially for support from Great Britain, especially given that one of his daughters, Alexandra, was married to the heir to the British throne, the future Edward VII. However, much of the attention of the British was then elsewhere, for that April the first shots of the American Civil War were fired. Britain was focused on protecting her interests in Canada, and also busy with India in the aftermath of his annexation to the Crown. Also, while British public and parliamentary opinion was strongly pro-Danish, the government was disturbed by the Danes' unwillingness to compromise and abide fully by treaties formally agreed in London. The French Foreign Office seemed to favour Denmark's position, but Napoleon III was occupied with what turned out to be a failed attempt to establish a pro-French empire in Mexico. Russia, meanwhile, was fully occupied by the latest reforms of Tsar Alexander II, that of the emancipation of the serfs. King Charles XV of Sweden was a strong advocate of cooperation between the countries of Scandinavia and had promised support and the provision of 20,000 men if needed to protect the Ida frontier between Schleswig and Holstein. However, his wishes were thwarted by his principal ministers, who warned that his army was unprepared and advised him to sound out the Western powers before committing to action. So in the end, Charles was forced to observe a strict neutrality. In December 1863, the German Confederation in Frankfurt voted narrowly to intervene. An army of 12,000 Confederate soldiers crossed the Danish frontier on the 23rd of December and moved northwards without resistance to occupy most of Holstein south of the River Ida. However, the force was too small to take on the inevitable Danish resistance if they attempted to move into Schleswig. 
Bismarck saw the situation as a great opportunity to question the succession of Schleswig and Holstein and to increase Prussian power in the region. The Austrian government were not particularly interested in going to war, but aware of their rivalry for influence in Germany, felt they could not afford to allow Prussia to seize the moral high ground as sole defender of the German cause. Also coordinating with Prussia was seen as an opportunity to establish common ground with Prussia, while at the same time checking any Prussian initiatives to acquire the duchies either by annexation or as a client. And so in January 1864, the two powers, Prussia and Austria, presented an ultimatum to Denmark. The Danes asked for more time to consider, but when this was refused, they rejected it and the Allies immediately sent their combined forces across the River Eider and into Schleswig. Prussia's military and naval forces were something of an unknown quantity, as they had not seen large-scale warfare since the end of the Napoleonic Wars. The army's mobilisation during the Italian War was a complete shambles. This apparent inefficiency, however, belied the great improvements that had recently been made. These improvements were due to several figures, in particular the Chief of the General Staff, General Helmut von Moltke, and also of the War Minister, General Albrecht von Rune. Equipment-wise, the most important innovation was the so-called needle gun for its infantry. It was a breech-loading gun, which means the user loads the cartridge via the rear, or breech, end of its barrel, as opposed to a muzzle loader, which loads ammunition via the front, or muzzle end. It could be loaded much more rapidly than previous guns, and also while the user was lying down, rather than having to stand up. Another important development was Prussia's recent expansion of its railway network, which allowed for much quicker mobilisation of troops. One weakness, however, was Prussia's navy, which was not yet well developed. Overall command of the Allied forces was given to an 80-year-old Prussian field marshal, Count Friedrich von Wrangel, whose only operational experience was against armed civilians during the Revolution of 1848. Under him was appointed a younger brother of King Wilhelm I, Frederick Charles. He was a stern but compassionate man, who was concerned always for the welfare of his men, who thereby returned the affection. Political control over the Prussian troops was exercised by Bismarck. Supreme command of the Danish forces went to General Christian de Metze. The 72-year-old had enjoyed a distinguished career and was a hero of the First Schleswig War of 1848-1850. The Danes decided to set up a defensive position at the Danneverke, a set of historic fortifications which stretched across the base of the Danish peninsula. The wall stretched for 30 kilometres from the former Viking trade centre of Hedeby on the Baltic Sea coast in the east to the extensive marshlands in the west of the peninsula. First built in the 9th century, or quite likely much earlier, the Danneverke was considered an important military position and formed the defensive position in the initial phase of the campaign. It had also become a powerful symbol for Danish nationhood 
and their perceived historic border. After centuries of abandonment and decay in the previous decade or so, the Danaverka fortifications had been partially restored, strengthened and equipped with artillery installations. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Denmark had about 36,000 men to defend the fortifications, but unfortunately this was not really enough. Any breakthrough through the line could potentially be fatal for the Danish army. When the Danish general de Metzer inspected the positions, he found the troops generally in good spirits, but could see that they were suffering from sub-zero conditions. The two sides fought a number of skirmishes, and the Prussians and Austrians were held back. But de Metzer realised he could not hold the line for much longer, and on the night of the 5th of February 1864, ordered a withdrawal to avoid his army being surrounded. The conditions were appalling. Soldiers trudged northwards in a north gale across snow and ice, burdened with artillery guns and supply carts. Most of the soldiers had no rest for four days and nights, and they had to fight rearguard actions against pursuing Prussians and Austrians. Fighting was particularly intense at the Battle of San Kelmark, about eight kilometres south of Flensburg, where pursuing Austrians caught up with the Danish rear party. The Danes, commanded by Colonel Max Muller, put up a hard fight, and despite the loss of more than 500 men, were able to halt the enemy pursuit. Although almost certainly the correct decision, from a military standpoint, the abandonment of the Denneverka without a fight was a psychological shock for Denmark, and there was pressure on General de Metzer to resign from supreme command. King Christian IX wanted him to stay on, but gave in to political pressure, and at the insistence of Council President Monrad, formally dismissed the general. The Austrian army, who had so far fought much more effectively than the Prussians, decided to stop at the north frontier of Schleswig, 
but Bismarck urged them to press on, to keep up the momentum and to force a settlement on the Danes. Austria reluctantly consented to continue the war. However, rather than invade deep into Danish territory, Bismarck instructed that the Prussian army should besiege the fortifications of Dubel, in the southeast of Jutland. The decision was controversial because the Danish positions there were heavily fortified and manned, and it was clear that a frontal attack could only succeed, if at all, with heavy casualties. The author and historian Christopher Clark writes that Bismarck's reasons, except for potential diplomatic problems with a full-scale invasion into Danish territory, was the need for Prussians to be seen to achieve a spectacular victory after the Austrians had so far been more successful than them on the battlefield. The Danish position at the fort of Dubel was not well prepared as a result of most of the recent effort being expended on fortifying the Danewerke. In particular, it lacked safe shelters. However, the Danes did have one major advantage and that they had more or less unchallenged command of the sea, were able to deploy a modern ironclad ship to the scene to support ground forces and to bombard the enemy with gunfire. The Prussians were almost helpless to prevent this, since they had no naval forces of their own capable of matching the Danish navy. The Battle of Dubel lasted from the 7th to the 18th of April, when the Prussians were able to break through the defensive lines and to capture the fort. Around 3,600 Danes and 1,200 Prussians were either killed, wounded or missing. While the battle was a defeat for the Danes, the inability to confront the Danish ironclad highlighted the naval weakness of Prussia. Also, the Danish navy was able to blockade German ports in the North Sea. In an attempt to remedy this, the Austrians sent two steam frigates to reinforce the small Prussian navy, which were intercepted by the Danish navy. On the morning of the 9th of May, the Danish and Allied squadrons confronted each other off the island of Helgoland, a small archipelago in the North Sea to the west of Denmark. The Austrians attacked with their two frigates, while the slower Prussian vessels lagged behind, unable to effectively engage the Danish warships. The Austrian flagship, the Schwarzenberg, bore the brunt of the Danish gunfire and caught fire three times, the last of which could not be put out quickly and forced the Austrians to retreat. Though Denmark had claimed a tactical victory in the battle, they were forced to end the blockade of the German coast and so the Allies had effectively achieved their strategic goal. Meanwhile, fighting continued on land. Repeatedly, Danish defenders found themselves outnumbered and outgunned, especially in terms of artillery, and they decided on the 25th of April to abandon an important post at the fortifications at Frederica, which had been attacked by the Austrian army. On the very same day, a conference was convened in London to try and seek a diplomatic solution. The meeting had been delayed by efforts to bring about an armistice first and by Bismarck's deliberate effort to postpone the opening until Prussia and Austria had made more gains. Lord Palmerston hoped to induce 
the Prussians and Austrians to withdraw their troops and the Copenhagen government to compromise, but neither side would concede. An armistice was arranged for the 12th of May and brought a temporary stop to the fighting. However, fighting flared up again in late June when the armistice ended and the Prussians launched a successful amphibious assault on the island of Allison. The Danes withdrew the ironclad ship, which would have protected the crossing because they were more concerned to defend the much larger island of Funen. The Battle of Alsen was the last major engagement of the war, as the Prussians secured the island, occupied by 9,000 Danish troops, including the garrison of Dubel, which had retreated there. In the battle which ensued, the Danes suffered more than 3,000 casualties, ten times those of the invading Germans. After the capture of Alsen, the Allies were keen to move on to take the island of Funen. However, Emperor Franz Josef of Austria and his government were against such a move, concerned by the likely hostile reaction of any further action against the Danish islands. Nevertheless, the Allies moved northwards to take control of the rest of the Jutland Peninsula. The loss of Alsen, anyway, created such panic in Copenhagen that the Prussians' further plan for crossing into Funen was not needed. The government of Monrad resigned on July the 8th, and a new cabinet immediately proposed an armistice. Danish negotiators in Vienna made proposals for dividing Schleswig, or exchanging the conquered territories for the Danish West Indies or for Iceland, and they were in no position to extract any concessions. Both Schleswig and Holstein were surrendered into the hands of the Prussians and Austrians, subject to very minor frontier adjustments to allow for enclaves. The Danes surely must have known from the beginning that they could not hope to win a war against one of the great powers of Europe, let alone two. But Danish nationalism was rampant in the middle 19th century and had forced the government into a position where it failed to show any flexibility in negotiations, which might otherwise have helped to avoid such a catastrophic defeat. The loss of population, territory and economic resources was a crushing blow to the Danish monarchy. It was also a blow to advocates of the pan-Scandinavian movement. The war had demonstrated that the people of Sweden and Norway were not persuaded to put their necks on the line and help the Danes for the sake of Schleswig. Rather than political unification, they focused on the cultural bonds between the nations of Scandinavia. As part of the Convention of Gastein, agreed on the 14th of August 1865, Prussia took over the administration of Schleswig, and Austria that of Holstein, and so about 200,000 Danes came under German rule. However, neither side saw this as a permanent solution, and within a year, the two victors of the Schleswig War were at war with each other, in one of the largest and most decisive battles of European history, the Battle of Königgratz. My name is Karl Rylett and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. The music today was from the Austrian composer 
Anton Bruckner, A Rhythm or Memory, and then later by the Russian composer Sergei Rachmaninoff, and the number 10 of his 13 preludes, Lento in B minor. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If so, why not give it a great review on iTunes or wherever you hear the podcast. It's always great to hear from you. You can write to me directly, carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net, or get in touch via the Facebook page. Before I finish, a quick personal message. The month I'm recording this, August 2022, I'm doing a charity cycle ride for Brain Tumor Research. More details on the podcast Facebook page and in the show notes. I hope you can join me next time for the second and final part on the Schleswig War of 1864. Until then, all the best and goodbye.